Well, New City Church, we're going to continue our series in the book of Romans. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter uh, 7. We're continuing our way through Romans uh, for the rest of the month. And uh, we've been looking at this great letter to this church in Rome. And uh, Paul has been laying out for us uh, just some beautiful teaching on the implications of the gospel and what Christ has accomplished uh, for us. And we come to chapter 7, and chapter 7 really is probably one of the most challenging, but also one of the most comforting chapters uh, in, in all of Scripture, next to, to Romans 8, of course, which we'll get to next week. Um, and, and Romans 7 is really about the Christian experience and the ups and the downs of life with God, that that, that often we, we see the Christian life in, in some churches and some teachers would say, you know, the Christian life is all victory and it's all, you know, great and everything goes well for us. But as you begin to follow Christ for any amount of time, you realize that there's a lot of peaks and valleys and it becomes more like a, a roller coaster. And, and chapter seven of Romans is really going to engage us and to show us, a, I think, a healthy picture of what Christian experience really is. Um, I was thinking uh, years ago, uh, I, I used to go to, to Los Angeles Clippers games when I grew up in Los Angeles with my dad. And once in a while, uh, we'd go to a game and after the game, we would see some famous people. And I remember a couple times we saw Howie Long, who used to be a, a, a famous uh, Raiders uh, linebacker. And then I remember seeing the basketball player Magic Johnson after he had retired. And I remember standing next to these big giants and they, they were huge and they were big and strong. And as a little middle schooler, just kind of in awe of, of them. But then a, as you kind of hang around them and, and others that we might seem as famous or competent or, or, or full of skill, whatever that is, um, they, they come off very ordinary. They, they have the same struggles that you and I have. And, and they have kids and they have families they have to take care of and, and they have to eat just like we do. And, and so sometimes we forget that the Christian experience often is full of highs and great joys, but it also can be very ordinary and it, and it can be a battle and it can be a, a struggle. And so, so I want to look at uh, chapter 7 of Romans for us that I think gives us, again, just a healthy picture of what the, the Christian experience uh, is like. And Paul specifically is going to hone in on what is the role of the law, God's commands in our lives now that we are Christians. Um, and that, that's where he spends a lot of, of time. The, 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 the commandments of God, what role do they have? That if we're freed in Christ, we're forgiven in Christ, what are the commands that we see in Scripture? What, what place do they have in our lives for battling sin, but also walking with, with Christ. Um, and, and I like the way that John Stott, he was a, a Bible teacher and a pastor many years ago. He, he's since passed, but uh, in England. And uh, the, the way he frames it is, is he, he, he sees Paul's teaching here in Romans 7 and says, you know, there's a word here for the legalist, uh, the one that, that says it's all about the law. Uh, there's a word here for libertines, if you want to use that language. Uh, those that, that some would call antinomians, that, that those that, that say that there's uh, no law and law is the problem and we don't need the commands at all. But there's also a word here for those that want to walk in the freedom of Christ. And, and so I want to frame uh, the message here this morning from chapter 7 with, with this idea. It's a word for legalists, a word for libertines, and a word for free people. And, and hopefully that will be helpful as we, we consider uh, the challenge, but also the comfort we find in, in Romans chapter 7. And so I'm going to read just a couple of verses from the, the first part of Romans 7. It's kind of a long chapter, and uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll kind of work through it as, as we go. So Romans chapter 7, uh, verse 6. I'm going to read the, or verse 1 through 6. I'm going to read the first six verses here. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. 
For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written Code. And so this is the, the first few verses of, of Romans 7. And, and, and what I said earlier, I have a word here for the legalist because uh, a legalist is really someone that, that believes following the law and fulfilling the law is the essence of their relationship to God. It's, it's the path of their justification. It's what gives them rightness before God. It's the path of sanctification. It's what changes them. Uh, it's what they believe is a, is a blessing from God to live under the, the, the law. And so they see the law, the commands of God as a way to earn favor or to, a way to earn blessing uh, with God. And that's where Paul begins this, this letter. As he asks the question, he says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? And that's a question. So what is the, the role of the law? Does the, the law, the commands of God, still have binding on the Christian? Well, Paul answers it in a very interesting way. There's a yes and a no. And that's kind of his, his way of addressing the law in Romans, but also if you, you read Galatians as well, is, is yes, the law does have a place, but at the same time, it's, it's done away with. And so, so what Paul does to help us understand that is he uses a metaphor from marriage, which I think is, is really helpful because he's addressing here. If you notice in verse one, he's addressing obviously people, Jewish people that know the scriptures, they know the commands of God. Uh, they know how this thing works and the customs uh, of the Old Testament because he calls them brothers there in first, in verse one. You could translate it sisters as well. Um, speaking to those who know the law. So obviously they have a familiarity with the law, but what is its place in our lives? What is its place now that we are freed in Christ, now that we've been forgiven in Christ, now that we are alive in, in Christ? So, so he uses this metaphor of marriage. And it's, it's a helpful metaphor because he says, for a married woman is bound by law, in verse 2, to her husband while she, she lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. If she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So, so Paul's answer is kind of a yes and a no. It's like, as she's alive in this, she's going to listen to the laws of the home, the, the, the laws that marriage suggests to us. But if the husband dies, she's free to remarry. The, the laws, she doesn't have to listen to her husband anymore that is now passed on. And that's the beauty of marriage, right? There's particular expectations that we're called to love our spouses. There's, 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 uh, there's familiarity, there's comfort, there's security in the marriage covenant because we're committed to one person. But if that person dies, we're no longer committed to that person uh, any longer. And so Paul's kind of playing with that, that marriage illustration to show that, yes, the law does have a place but it's also died in another way. It also doesn't have a place. And that's where he's getting to an application here to help us understand what role does it have? Is it, is it something we just fall now? So follow. So our relationship ultimately is about following God's commands, God's rules. Is that really what it means to be a Christian? 
that if I'm a good person, I'm always just trying to follow the laws and that's really the heartbeat of what it means to be a follower of Christ. But, but notice what he does and how he applies this in verse 4. And he's picking up what he's been doing all in chapter 6. Notice what he says here in verse 4. In verse 4 he says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So, so he says, we've died to the law because we've died in Christ. And he's, he's picking up again what, what he said, uh, in, in the last chapter, in Romans chapter six, verse four, Romans six, verse four, he says, we were buried therefore with him, Christ, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then verse 5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So so Paul's saying, using this, this marriage illustration that if we're alive and we're married, there's laws that are in place, but once something happens and death occurs, those laws don't apply. And then he picks it up with the imagery of Christ that, that Christ has died, but we've also died with Christ and Christ has been risen and we have also been risen with Christ. And to say that dying to sin is also another way of saying dying to the penalty just described by the law. So when we die to sin... We also die to the law. It's the same thing. So legalism and morality and religious piety is not the path for the Christian. That's why there's a word here for the legalist that would think the essence, the heartbeat, the, the power in the relationship with God is just following rules. Because Paul is saying here that a, a death has occurred and now we've come alive to Christ. And now, instead of Following the laws, the external rules of God, we've now have a new marriage. Not to the law before Christ that showed us our sin, but now to Christ himself. Because he says that now that we belong to another, a new marriage has happened. You have been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which led us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So a new marriage has taken a place. A new life has taken place. The law has, has died in a sense, but now we've come alive to Christ and now the spirit works in us and now we are free to serve him. And so that it's Christ that now works in us. Christ that now frees us, that as we died to sin, we also died to the law. And as we've risen from the dead now in Christ, we have new life in him to serve him and love him and to bear what Paul says here, spiritual fruit. So, so we, we, we bear the spiritual fruit of, of freedom and love and joy and peace. So my, my word for the legalist, that if you find yourself struggling with thinking that you're, the essence, the heartbeat is just following rules, being a good person, being moral, being religious, you're released from the bondage of the law. 
So trade in rule following, trade in religion, and trade it for the fruit of Christ and the spirit of love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and control, self-control and patience and faithfulness and gentleness and service to God in the power of the spirit. Because I think, and all of us, we have we have legalistic tendencies, whether you grew up in the church or didn't grow up in the church. I love Luke 15. I think it's a great framework for understanding how all of us aren't. We love to focus on the older brother who you know squanders the father's inheritance and goes and lives with the pigs and comes back with his you know head between his his, his legs and, and just says, "Father, you know, please forgive me, let me in." And then there's the older brother, right? We forget about the older brother who's standing as the father wants to throw the younger brother a party and celebrate with him and goes, Father, where's my party? I've done everything right. And the father says, but everything I have has been yours the whole time. Come and celebrate with us. Celebrate that your father, or excuse me, celebrate that your younger brother is home. So, so we all have those legalistic older brother tendencies in our hearts and in our souls to think that the essence of my relationship with God and the essence of my goodness and rightness is following rules. And so what that can do is also make us self-righteous, is that we're quick to condemn, we're quick to judge other people because they're not measuring up to our standards, the standards of the law. But, but a word to the legalist is we've been freed from the law. Now we have the spirit of Christ living in us to free, to live for him, to love him, to worship him, and to walk in the power of the spirit and to bear fruit in Christ. So be freed from the bondage of the law. But secondly, I also have a word for the libertine, the, those that would say that the law has absolutely no place in our lives. The law is the problem. Some have called that, that antinomian, antinomianism, that it has no place. So they go to another extreme. They say the law has no place. It's caused all the problems. We're free from all its demands. We live as we please. Instead of liberty, now it's license. Let's go nuts, right? That the problem in my life, the problem in your life, the problem in our culture is that laws and rules and regulations But Paul, being Paul and being the brilliant Bible teacher that he is, isn't going to let us off the hook. Because look at verse 7, the way Paul engages this. Verse 7, what then shall we say? Again, another question, that the law is sin? So it's bad. It has no place, right? It's, it's, it doesn't have any place in our lives. That's where the libertine gets really excited and goes, yes and amen. But he says, no, by no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would have not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced to me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. There's a, there's a lot there. But what, what Paul is saying is that the, the, the law has, has, has room for us. It has a, has a role for us even in Christ. Now, Paul, after the first six verses, could have went right to Romans 8 and said, hey, you're freed in Christ. You have the Spirit of God living us. That's what Romans 8's all about. But obviously, this is a problem, and there's some contention in the church that they think the law is done away with, and it has no place. But he says, by no means, it still has a place. And so he wants to answer their objections. 
He wants to linger there a little bit longer and to say, is the law bad? Is it sinful? And obviously he answers, no way. But what is the purpose of the law? Well, Paul makes it very clear that the law shows us the reality of sin. How, how do we know what sin is unless the law shows up? How do we have any framework, any context, unless something says, you puts our lives next to the commandments of God and shows us how woefully fall we short, we fall short. How we don't love God as, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We don't love our neighbors as we should. The law shows us that the reality of sin is alive and well. But but as Paul says also in verse 7, it says, but the law also defines what sin is. Paul says, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. How do we know what coveting is? How do we know what murder is? How do we know what lying is? Unless the law defines and shows us what that actually is. And so, so the law still has a place on one level to show us what sin is, that sin is alive and well, which leads to the, I think really a third role, which Paul says in verse eight and in 13 says that the law also reveals that there's sin in us still. Check out verse, verse eight. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. And then if you jump down to verse 13, it says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So Paul says the law actually also reveals that sin actually is inside of me. Warping my desires, my loves, as, as Augustine, the, the great theologian for the, for the fourth century said that we all have these disordered loves. We have this, this discontent in our hearts and in our souls. And so what the law does is it reveals that sin actually lives in us, pushing us away from God and his ways, pushing us away from the kingdom of God, putting us, making us the king instead of Jesus being the king. So the law does have a role because it still reveals sin in us. But the word to the libertine is, is to also remind us that the law can't save us and the legalists. It, it reveals we need a savior. It, the, the law is just a pointer to say, this is what it, God uh, desires of you but you can't pull it off apart from him and the work of the Spirit. You can't pull it off without the Savior. No one can keep the law. That's why Jesus was a perfect sacrifice. That's why he was the perfect spotless land that took our place on the cross. He was the one who kept the commands perfectly. He became for Israel what they couldn't be for themselves. He became for us sin and became our righteous by his perfect moral record. So, so the law is always a beacon. It's always pointing. It's always showing us constantly how much we need the grace and mercy of Jesus, how much we need a Savior, a Messiah to stand in for us. Because as the law reveals how woefully fall we short, we go, what do we do? Where do we go? And Paul wants to make that very clear that the law still does have a place. I mean, in verse 12 and 13, I mean, he says, it's, he says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Sometimes you read Paul and you think, is he a little bit bipolar? Is he, is he kind of schizophrenic in some, some way? 
because it seems like one moment he's like, you know, the law is dead, it's, it has no place, but then it does still kind of have a place. So, so what is it, Paul? But I think he's, he's showing that the law is good and holy and right because it leads us to convict us of our sin, but then it ultimately leads us to the Savior. And so a word to the libertine is, sorry, the law still has a beautiful place in your life because how would you know if you're even following God? How would you even know if you're, you, you, you're, you're living life in the power of the Spirit or living in joy? Because we know that the commandments of God are always to enhance our joy, not squash our joy. They're always to give us more life as we follow God in his ways. It shows us how the universe is meant to function. We know that because the, the ills of our society that the law would point to, which is sin, would, would say it's, it's murder, it's theft, it's adultery, it's covetousness, it's lying, it's cheating. All of those things pointed to say that that's not the way the good creation was meant to work. But now that sin is in the work, things have gotten fractured. Things are broken all the way back to the garden until now. So the law is good revealing to us how much we need a savior. Now that that was Paul's experience. You, you, it's a little bit of con, kind of confusing what Paul's saying here in verses eight to eleven, but but he's he's really showing his experience and how he 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 encountered the law um, himself. Because in verse eight, notice what he says. He says, "But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but then he command the commandment came. Sin came alive, and I died. Like very strange idea here. Like wait a minute, Paul, you were alive to the law. Don't we come alive in Christ? What are you talking about here? Here's what Paul meant. He's a Hebrew of Hebrew, a Jew of Jew. He knows the the law backwards and forward. He is a pious Jew with all the external religious uh, trappings that, that any Jewish person would be jealous of. He is a holy, godly man before he meets Christ. But what happened was when he began to to see what the law is and what it does, that it reveals sin in us. It shows us our need for grace. When the commandment comes, what he realizes is, I am dead. I'm dead because of sin. I know the law says I I shouldn't covet, but man, every time I I try not to covet, I just want to covet even more that something else was going on inside of me and it had nothing to do with the law. The law just showed me my need for grace, my need for Jesus. And so he comes alive because of the commandments of God that pointed him to the Savior. So so he understood the law had a place, yes and amen, but the law is not the culprit here of Christian experience. The culprit of Christian experience is sin. It's sin. When When a criminal is caught for a crime, they're tried, they're sentenced to prison for theft, let's say, the problem's not the law. You know, the, 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 the problem is, is the law just reveals that they did something wrong. They stole something. But the criminal now has to take responsibility for their criminal sinful behavior. The law just points them to the realities that they've done something wrong and now they have to take responsibility for the things they've done wrong. That's what the law does. That's what Paul understood his experience was the law was pointing to me to say, I can't keep the commands. I break the laws all day long. I fall so short of loving God with all that I am and loving my neighbor as myself. The law is a, in a way, is a gift to show us our true need that we have sin residing in us that's creating in us desires and a life and actions that go against God's ways. 
So the law does have a place, libertines and legalists, that it's the law is not to save you, legalists, but it's to point to you to show that you need Jesus. Libertines, the law is not to be thrown out and say the problem with, with our world and, and my life and your life is just we have too many rules and regulations. We just need to be free. But, but what it does is it reveals in us again our need for grace, our need for Jesus, our need for freedom. That the law is still good because it shows us how to love God well and it shows us how to love our neighbors well. So we don't have a law problem. We have a sin problem that needs remedy. So lastly, a word for, for people who want to walk in freedom. And, and I think that's a great way that, that Paul kind of ends Romans 7. He says there's, there's a better way. It's not just walking in legalism and following the commands or throwing the law out. There's, a, there's kind of a middle way for people that want to walk in the freedom of, of Christ. And so in verse 14, it says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells Within me. Again, Paul is saying it, it wasn't the law that showed me, it wasn't the law that was the problem, it was the sin that was the problem, it was the law that pointed to my sin. And, and Paul's having this wrestling match, right? And this is the, the great challenging section of, of, of the Bible is, okay, Paul, is this, you know, people want to debate this, you know, till they're blue in the face. Is this before Paul was a Christian or is this after he was a Christian? This struggle that Paul is obviously happening, he, he having, he wants to do the right thing, but he seems like he's woefully short. He wants to follow Christ, but he, he wants to do the right thing, but he's not doing the right thing. So obviously this must be at, before he was a Christian, not after, because Christians don't struggle like this. But that's the opposite of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying this is actually normal Christian experience. And I want to tell you just real briefly why I think this is post-conversion Paul and why this is normal Christian experience. Just three little ideas here. I won't say a lot about them because they're pretty obvious. Is that if you look at the, the Greek, and I know you all, you all know the Greek, but if you look at the Greek, Greek in the New Testament, the verbs of verses 7 to 13 are all in the past tense. Okay, But if you look at verse 14 and all the verbs that come 14 to 25, they're all in the present tense. So Paul's not talking about his past experience before Christ. He's talking about his present reality as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. Also, if you look at verses 7 to 13, Paul is, is talking about being killed by sin in the past. So something that happened in the past. But verse 14 and on, he talks about how sin is an ongoing struggle in the present in which he is he's struggling to surrender to. He wants to do the good, but he just doesn't seem to be able to pull it off. There's something else going on in him, ultimately sin that's dwelling in him and warring in him. And that's why for us as believers, there's a daily battle with, with sin. And then I think a third piece that I think is very compelling for me is that in verse 22... We didn't read that, but it says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Non-Christians don't delight in the law of God. They don't delight in the word of God. So I think this can't mean pre-conversion Paul. I think this is post-conversion Paul because only Christians delight in the word of God and the law of, of God. 
So, so what does this mean? What, 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 does it, what does it mean for our Christian experience? What place does the law have? What do we learn from this? Well, as Christians, we can still identify with the law. Paul has said this time and time again, that, that the law is spiritual. He says that in verse 14 and, and 12, we, we already read, it's holy, it's good, it has a place, it reveals sin in us. It obviously has a, has a place because Paul has a desire to keep the law. We see that in verse 15 and verse um, 18. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know, verse 18, that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So there is a place that he sees the law. He puts his life next next to the law and says, I want to do these things. I want to follow God's commands, but I'm just having a hard time pulling it off. And he realizes that, that the ability to pull it off is impossible without Christ because we all have conflicting desires. We want to do good. We want to do right, just like Paul. But he sees this other war raging inside him, this, this sinful, he, sinful desire, these, these inclinations of the soul, that, that we have these, these multiple selves at, at war in us daily. I'm a child of God. I'm a new creation. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I belong to Jesus. I'm in Jesus. Yes and amen. My, my identity, my, my foundation, my life, my salvation is all in that. But I still struggle to live out that identity. I fall short. I say harsh things to my wife. I don't give to the poor as I should. I don't love my neighbor as I, I should, should. And so there's this, this daily struggle, this daily war that happens in me. My identity as Christ that is firm and, and, and foundational that's never going away. But I have this other war that's happening in me. And that's why it's a, a daily battle. And that's what we see here in Paul. While this is very challenging teaching for us, it's also, I think, um, very comforting as, as well because we see in Paul the, the same Christian experience that you and I have. Some days it seems like following Jesus is absolutely the easiest thing in the world, right? And other days it feels like pushing a boulder up a mountain, Right? And maybe that's just me, but, but, but there's days where it's difficult. There's days we fall in our place. There's days we say, I can't believe I said that or did that. And there's days we feel close and to, to Christ. And there's days we, we, we feel like we're on the top of the mountain. And that's why I opened the sermon the way I did it, because so much teaching on the Christian experience is like one or the other. But the reality is it's not just a mountaintop, and it's also just ordinary, difficult battle of daily fighting sin and, and struggle. And so both those things have to meet together because that's exactly what Paul says the Christian experience is. And if you've been around other Christians, you know any amount of time, it is that same struggle. So as we begin to, to kind of land, land the plane here, I just want to give you just a warning and a comfort here from, from Romans 7. The first warning is that no one ever becomes so mature in Christ that they never have to deal with seeing their own sin. There's never a point in your life where you're like, I'm done, I'm done with that. I don't need to see it anymore. I don't need to deal with it anymore. Actually, what happens is the more holy you become, the less holy you feel. (laughs) That's why people that have really good prayer lives, they talk as if they don't have a good prayer life. The, the, the more holy we feel, the, the, the more we feel like we're, we're trusting in Christ, walking with Christ, trying to live a godly, holy, good life before God, trying to love God with all that we are, trying to love our neighbors as ourselves by God's grace. The more we do that, the less holy we feel. That's what Paul's saying here. I imagine Paul was doing okay. He, he wrote three-fourths of the New Testament. 
Um, he was one of the greatest missionaries we've ever seen. He, 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 he suffered for the sake of the gospel. He loved Jesus. He loved Jesus' people. And yet here he is saying, what a wretched man that I am. So no one is so mature that they never have to deal with seeing their sins. Because the more holy we become, the more holy we realize we aren't. But secondly, no one ever becomes so mature they never struggle with sin. That's what 1 John 1.8 says, that if you say with your out sin, you're a liar. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying this is his present experience as a believer. I want to do the right, but I can't do the right. There's some war going on inside of me. So, so the mature believer is always going to say, never going to say, I never struggle with sin. Because Jesus, I love the way Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, because he's always kind of nailing us. Not only the, the big commands of God, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, but he's also nailing our motivations in our heart. Because he always says, you know, do not commit adultery, do not uh, commit adultery, but also if you have lust in your heart. D- do not murder, but if you have anger in your heart. Ever have lust or anger in your heart? Right? We all fall short of God's glory. Because it's easy for us to go, well, I didn't murder anybody today. I didn't commit adultery today. I didn't steal anything today. But yet, we have warped desires and inclinations. We, we could have been angry today in our heart. We could have had lustful thoughts in our, in our hearts. Maybe our sins aren't that obvious. But did we love God with everything that we are? Did we make Him central in our lives today? Did we love our neighbors as ourselves? Were they the, the thing that we were there to serve today or something else, Right? So if we get honest, we know the mature Christian is never going to say, I never struggle with sin. It's a daily battle. It's part of growing up in Christ. But here's the comfort. Here's the hope. That there's a cry of discouragement knowing that we fall short, just like Paul here. That, that, that to be obedient, to be holy, to follow Christ, we, we find ourselves failing constantly. But there's a great comfort because there's a cry of freedom and hope that we find in Jesus. That's where Paul ends his letter. He says, 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And here's what he says. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. He, he says, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a wretched man, but thanks be to God for the work of Christ on my behalf. Thanks be to God for the spirit of Christ that lives in me now, where I am now married to Christ and I have a new freedom in him to serve him and to bear fruit in him. That, that our battle of sin isn't a battle of sin and following the commands. It's looking to Christ, looking to the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who has done it on our behalf. So every one look at our sin, someone say, we need to take 10 looks at Jesus. He is our hope. He is our salvation. He is our righteousness. The Christian life isn't the gospel of sin management, trying to balance the scales and do the right things. It's constantly in faith, in trust, looking to Jesus and trusting that he is at work and he's going to give us the power and the strength where, where sin doesn't have to, have to have the last say because Jesus was victorious on the cross and he was victorious by his resurrection. And so our efforts of following Christ are always rooted in trusting in, in him and him alone so that we could bear much fruit and we can be freed to love and serve those around us and love our God. And that's exactly where the Apostle Paul is going to take us next week in Romans chapter 8, is what does a life in the Spirit look like? 
Now that the sin has, we have died to sin, we have died to the law, what does it look like to walk out a spirit-filled life for the glory of God in this freedom that Paul now offers us? So I hope you join us next week with that. Why don't we pray? Father in heaven, thank you for Romans 7. Thank you that you remind us that the Christian experience in life with you and your kingdom is a roller coaster ride. It's days of great joy and great affection and great love and spiritual highs. And it's also days of, of suffering and struggle and lows and wondering, am I even a Christian at times? But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus has come to us and he has loved us and he's laid his life down for us and he's given us his righteousness. And so what that means is that we look to him and not ourselves. What we means is we look to you, oh God, in your work and not our own. What it means is that you never leave us or forsake us. What it means is that you've given us your spirit to walk in freedom and newness of life. So thank you, God, for your grace and mercy. Thank you for the gift of Romans 7 to to encourage us and comfort us to say this is difficult and hard, but you're with us always. And we get to walk this out with Christian brothers and sisters as well. So thank you for that gift. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.